Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 37 of Games Are Fun. My name is Luke and I'm your host as always. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, Games Are Fun is a weekly video game podcast show that talks about video game news, stories, and highlights. Each week I talk about video games. Sometimes I'm talking about current news stories, sometimes I'm talking about my thoughts on the video game industry, and other times I'm talking about my experiences with video games. I'm talking about what games I've played, what games I've played in the past, and what games I'm looking forward to. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about my favorite Nintendo 64 games. Now, I know there's some mixed feelings when it comes to podcasts or YouTube videos that just list the best and favorite things in a particular category, but I want this to be a topic for an episode because the Nintendo 64 played a significant role in my love for video games. Uh, the Nintendo 64 was the first console I owned as a kid, so I have a lot of memories playing the Nintendo 64 and some of the games on that console. So I wanted to devote an entire episode to just talking about those games and what I loved about them. So hopefully you'll learn about a new game today or maybe I'll jog your memory and help you rediscover a game from your past that you forgot about. Just a reminder that the podcast releases every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and other podcast services. Just search for Games Are Fun Podcast and hopefully it comes up on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. If it doesn't, I apologize for that. My goal is to get the podcast on all the major platforms. Actually, in the coming weeks, I hope to have the podcast available to play on Spotify. Hopefully by next episode... It will be available on Spotify, but in case you can't wait till then and you want to know when it actually is up on Spotify, head over to my social media accounts. Uh, Go over on Facebook, just search for Games Are Fun Podcast. Like that page, go over to my Twitter at Games Are Fun Pod or my Instagram at Games Are Fun Podcast. I'll definitely post an update on one, one or if not all those social media sites on when the podcast is going to be available on Spotify and some of those other podcast services that currently is not available on. Now, one more piece of housekeeping before we get into today's topic. I wanted to share some news with everyone. I'm one of the co-hosts of a new Apex Legends-focused podcast called Apex Champions. Of course, Apex Legends is the new Battle Royale game from Respawn Entertainment that's set in the Titanfall universe. It's a brand new game that is just kind of blowing up right now. It's one of the most streamed games over on Twitch it's I talked about it last week and all the news around it and all the announcements that were made shortly after its release in last week's episode so go back to episode number 36 if you want to know my initial impressions of the game but Garrett Neely created this podcast Apex Champions and basically each week Apex Champions is going to bring you news and what's going on in Apex Legends as well as have a more focused topic that relates to the game and have a discussion around that. Uh, The first episode is up right now. You can just go over to your major platform of choice whether you listen to your podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and search for Apex Champions. At the time of this recording, I believe it's currently only up on Anchor, Spotify, but by the time this goes live, it should be available on some of those other major platforms. Uh, The best way to know what's going on with the podcast and to know when it's dropping on some of those other platforms is head over to the Twitter page at Apex underscore champions and give it a follow. I'm also going to try my best to retweet and share all the updates on the show on the Games Are Fun social media pages. 
So that's it for housekeeping. Let's get into talking about Nintendo 64 and some of my favorite games from the Nintendo 64. So I'm going to run through some of these games. Majority of them I experienced for the first time as a kid. In fact, uh, now looking at the list, yes, I, I experienced all these games for the first time as a kid. And some of the games I'm still playing to this day. Uh, for some of these games on the list, I only actually experienced playing them maybe a handful of times. And then there are other games on the list that I put in countless hours to, and like I mentioned, even play to this day. So there's kind of a wide range of how familiar I am with the games. Uh, like I mentioned at the top of the show, these games are in no particular order. They're just a highlight of some great Nintendo 64 games that I think other people enjoyed. And I, I think it would just be a fun thing to talk about. So... Basically, I'm just going to, you know, list all the different games, give a bit of description for it, and maybe tell a story or two associated to that game. I also thought it'd be fun to list the Metacritic score. Uh, if there's no Metacritic score for the game, we'll try to find like a, a review score from IGN or something like that. Um, sometimes I think we're blinded by nostalgia and unaware if the games from back in our, our childhood are actually considered good games, right? I think back to some of my favorite games and then I listen to podcasts now as adult and sometimes from time to time there will be a game that I remember playing as a kid that will pop up in discussion on a podcast or maybe on a YouTube video I'm watching and I'll learn that that game was actually a horrible game that was not very well received. So it'll be interesting to kind of look at the review scores and compare them to what I thought about the game back in the day. So... Let's start off. Like I mentioned, these are in no particular order. We're going to start off with a great game called Mystical Ninja starring Gomon. So Mystical Ninja for the Nintendo 64 was developed by Konami Computer Entertainment Osaka. And it was obviously published by Konami as well. It released in Japan on August 7th, 1997 and North America in April 16th of 1998. So the, basically the, the game follows the character Gomon and basically his job is to prevent the Peach Mountain Shogun's gang from turning Japan into a westernized fine arts theater. I know, very, very weird synopsis. Uh, there's also kind of some musical numbers in it. The intro uh, theme song to the game is very high energy and kind of, it's very Japanese. And yeah, the game is set in the mystical ninja world. This is not the first mystical ninja, but it was the first game that I believe was a 3D platformer in the franchise. Uh, it sold about 200,000 copies worldwide and it was received well based on its graphics as well as some of the the humor behind the story so starting off with i guess the metacritic score uh mystical ninja actually had a metacritic score of 67 percent uh, ign.com gave it a 7.6 out of 10 back in the day so you know above that middle ground, it's a good, solid game. It's not great, it's not amazing, it's just a good game. It's really hard to explain this game because it is so odd. The reason why it's on my list is a little bit of backstory to it. I should mention that 
all the games on these lists, now, I shouldn't say all of them, but a majority of them I rented as a kid. I never actually owned. A lot of the games I had played on the Nintendo 64, I rented. I only had, I think, probably four or five games. Um, now that I'm adult, I have actually purchased used copies of some of these games that I used to rent all the time back in the day, like Mystical Ninja. I actually ended up paying like 70 or 80 bucks on eBay for a copy of this game, I think probably three or four years ago now. And yeah, so a lot of these games I just experienced by renting them over and over and over again. And I remember that this game was a game that me and my older sister rented, having not a clue what it was about at all, just saw it on the shelf in the blockbuster or video store that we were at and picked it up, took it home, put it in. And I remember the theme song queued up and... I just remember it being so high energy and so entertaining that I was like, man, I can get down behind this game. It was a 3D platformer, so it actually was a fun world to kind of go in and around. And compared to some other games on the Nintendo 64, it, like I mentioned, uh, it was well received for its graphics. You, you noticed that back in the day. It was like, wow, this game is, is really great. There's, you know, NPCs walking around, there's buildings, everything's rendered pretty pretty well and the gameplay was actually fun. I remember my biggest complaint was there was sometimes some wide open fields where you had to kind of walk through them or run through them and that became a little tedious. It was almost like the world was too big, um, not necessarily too big but just kind of empty to some degree. That was probably even as a kid, my biggest complaint. I remember, I can't remember what part of the game. It was probably within the first hour or two you go out into this field and I remember it just feeling really big and spacious and even when we look at games like Ocarina of Time which of course I'm going to be talking about a little bit later Hyrule Field was this big open field but with that it just was a sense of like oh my gosh this world will go on forever this game is huge whereas I remember in this game just being like I don't really understand like what the point of this is. I don't know how big this field is. It just seemed odd to me. So that was, I think, a criticism I pulled as a kid and even playing it, you know, I think the last time I played it was probably a couple years ago now, but I remember just being like, man, it can get a little tedious at times, you know, going through the world and stuff. Uh, so for a lot of these games, I'm just kind of pulling the plot of, of the game to kind of just hopefully share some of the the gameplay and what it looked like. Um, so basically, this game you navigated Gomon through forest fields, dungeons, and other three-dimensional models of feudal Japan. Gomon and his friends can walk or run, jump, attack, and use special abilities. So that was the other thing. You didn't actually just play as Gomon. There was other characters that you could play as, and then there is also some other elements to the game um sometimes you have to complete some like kind of mini games and other times there are i don't even know how to explain it it's basically like a giant robot battle where you get into these giant robots and and battle see it's funny that i started with this game because it is so like i said so weird it's so difficult to explain. My best advice to you guys is go on YouTube, search for the gameplay and just watch it. And then that will be the best way to figure out what this game kind of looks like. 
it's like I said, it's very difficult to explain, but it was one of my favorite games because I just remember it being kind of weird and somewhat intriguing in a way that I continuously wanted to play it, right? It was one of those games that when I got older, I kind of forgot what the name of the game was, but I just, I remember I could visualize it. And I remember being with a couple friends, I think we we're out at a restaurant and one of my friends had mentioned the game and it sounded familiar to me and I started asking questions and then they played the theme song to it and I instantly remembered that game just from listening to the theme song. And it was funny because my friend actually said that back in the day he owned the game and what he'd do as a kid is he would start up his day by putting in the putting the cartridge in the Nintendo 64, putting it on and listening to that that song to start his day off, which is absolutely hilarious. So if anything, YouTube, the the entry to Mystical Ninja starring Gomon, and that's all you need to do. And let's move on to the second game on my list. This one I did own. I did not rent. I actually own this game. And it was it probably next to Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, which is my favorite game of all time, and obviously on the Nintendo 64. That's no surprise. I've talked about that on the show before. Pokemon Stadium 2 was another big favorite of mine. So developed by Nintendo EAD and obviously published by Nintendo, Pokemon Stadium 2 released in Japan on December 14th, 2000, and a whole year, well, not a whole year, I guess, uh, about three months later on March 26, 2001. So this was obviously a sequel to the first Pokemon game, Pokemon Stadium, and it basically had the same kind of gameplay. You had the stadium battles. You could, you know, pick six Pokemon, pick three Pokemon, whatever the battle you wanted to do, and battle Pokemon in the stadium. You could take on the gym leaders and work your way up to the Elite Four and battle them. You could also obviously uh, take your Game Boy Color and get the Game Boy Pack and play, you know, Pokemon Yellow, Red, Blue, Gold, Silver, and play them on the big screen. That was a big thing about the Pokemon Stadium games is getting that Pokemon adapter to plug into your Nintendo 64 so you could play, you know, your portable games on the on the big screen. That was really cool. Um, but basically, Pokemon Stadium just took the battle aspects from, you know, the handheld Pokemon games and brought it to a home console. And since then, I don't think it's really been re replicated uh, we've had some different spin-off Pokemon games, you know, Pokemon Coliseum, um, Gale of Darkness. There, there's a bunch of different games, a bunch of that were on the GameCube and some on the Wii that I don't think were as well received as the Pokemon Stadium games were back in the day. But this game, what it really did for me, it wasn't the battle systems, it was actually the mini games that were so fun. I remember I would have family friends over or some of my friends come over for a sleepover and we boot up Pokemon Stadium 4 or Pokemon Stadium 2 um, and just play the mini games because it was great. It was kind of like a, you know, round, not a round robin, but you would play different matches, different types of games and whoever got the most points out of each game won. And you, I would just do that back to back we play like these little tournaments and keep going for the game and a great thing about that game is i remember i actually one day when i started really using twitch to watch video game streams i remember searching for pokemon stadium 2 over on twitch of course that at that time was 
quite an old game and st obviously still is today. And I found a streamer in it and it was just fun jumping on that stream. And obviously the stream didn't have a lot of viewers because it's Pokemon Stadium 2 and I think it was, you know, 2015 or something like that. And it was really cool interacting with the streamer who's playing the game because we were sharing a lot. We were about the same age and we were sharing all those kinds of memories we had with the game back in the day, right? Playing it as a kid, playing it with our friends on sleepovers or whatever. And that's what this game really did. It was probably the one game on the console that was the funnest to play with friends. So that's why it's on my list. It holds a special part, part, it's, geez, it, it holds a special place in my heart. Now, moving on to my third game, Iggy's Wrecking Ball. So this was another rental game that I never owned, but rented multiple times. Iggy's Wrecking Balls was developed by Iguana Entertainment and was published by Acclaim Entertainment. This was a game that released actually in North America first because it was developed by an American company and it was released July 31st, 1998 in North America, August 1st, 1998 in Europe and August 28th, 1998 in Japan. It was kind of a weird platforming racing game where basically there were these balls uh, characters that were spheres and you basically raced by bouncing on this kind of circular track. Sometimes it was a side-scrolling track and you would race either to the top or to the end of the, the track or whatever. It was a really weird game now that I think about it, but I remember just the world that these tracks were in being really cool as a kid. Um, the, the main guy, Iggy is a kind of like, he's a ball, obviously they're all spheres. Um, but he was like a iguana and some of the other characters were kind of weird things. Like I remember there was a Jack, Jack-o-lantern or something like that. But basically there was a bunch of stages that you raced. The, the popular ones were the towers where you'd kind of race up to the tower and the first one, um, to the top, once you reach the top story, you would teleport back to the bottom and then do it all over again. And so you would have like three laps or whatever. And yeah, I couldn't actually find too much information on this game. Even the Wikipedia page had not a ton of information on it just because of the fact that it, you know, I don't think it was a super popular game. I couldn't even find it on Metacritic. So I had to actually pull a review from IGN.com and they actually gave it a 6.9 out of 10. So not too bad, not terrible, but not like amazing or anything. And believe it or not, Pierre Schneider of IGN actually was the one who reviewed Iggy's Wrecking Balls for Nintendo 64. And so I just wanted to read the last little paragraph the verdict of Pierre Schneider's review on IGN.com. So the verdict, Iggy's is a cool multiplayer game, but for me, the gameplay just didn't click in the single player mode. Things simply get boring after a while, despite their original concept and funny characters. One thing I noticed is that Iggy's can't quite decide whether it's a 2D or 3D game. Honestly, I would have actually preferred a 2D platform eraser with the same style of gameplay, but tighter controls. It sometimes gets confusing which direction to push the analog stick into and smoother 
frame rates, but I realized that most people wouldn't even look at this game twice if it was in 2D. On the programming side, Iguana should be commended for trying something new and pulling off a game with lots of tracks, characters, and features in a mere 4 megabytes. That's right, 4 megabytes. To sum it all up, it, see they were even blown away by 4 megabytes back in the day. That's an extremely small amount nowadays. To sum it all up, Iggy's is an excellent choice for younger players or gamers who primarily play their games against their friends. Older gamers should plan on a weekend rental to figure out whether they like Iggy's. And so again, it was a, a rental for me that I figured out that I liked it, but I do remember that it wasn't a game that I played by myself. It was a game that I did play with my older sister and some of my friends when they came over. Uh, so Pear mentioned that in his review that it is was more focused as being a multiplayer game that you play with other people. So interesting game. Uh, maybe go over, this is another that I recommend going over on YouTube. Just watch some gameplay so you kind of get the idea of the mechanics behind the game. It was, it, it's an interesting game that I'm sure not a lot of people have heard of. Number four on my list is a very popular game for a lot of people. Um, it is a game that I'm sure majority of the audience, unlike the last game, have actually played. And that is GoldenEye 007 for the Nintendo 64. So GoldenEye 007 was a licensed video game that released on the Nintendo 64. It was obviously based on the 1995 film James or sorry, it was based on the 1995 James Bond film GoldenEye with Pierce Brosnan and it was developed by Rare. So Rare was at that time already known as being an awesome video game developer that developed some really awesome games and they created this licensed GoldenEye 007 game. So it was developed by Rare, published by Nintendo. It was released in August 25th, 1997. Uh, so obviously, GoldenEye 007, I don't need to explain to you guys, was a first-person shooter game. It was actually one of the first-person first shooter games I actually remember playing. I remember my aunt actually owned this game. She had a Nintendo 64 as well. And I remember when we went to go visit her, because she didn't live in the same city as us, she had Mario Kart 64. Just a heads up, that's obviously also on my list. Um, she had Mario Kart 64 and GoldenEye 007. I remember playing multiplayer GoldenEye 007 with my older sister, my dad, and my aunt, and my uncle, and my mom, just as a family bonding on this game of GoldenEye 007. I remember, you know, when you die, the blood, and the doo-doo, doo-doo, when you would die or whatever, and it was just loads of fun, that, that multiplayer split screen. It really set the stage for future first-person shooters and future multiplayer split-screen modes for future games, I guess. When we, you know, around that time, this wasn't something that was done very often, and if at all, and they really executed it really well. When you talk to people about the Nintendo 64 and what games they like, this is a game that is on majority of people's list because it is a game in history that set the standards for first-person shooters for all those future generations. The game was really, really fun. I remember the single-player campaign was great. It basically played out the movie, and 
it was great because scenes that maybe lasted five minutes in a movie, there was a whole level where you could spend like 15, 20 minutes, maybe even 30 minutes in this level playing through it. And yeah, I just, I loved it. I remember as a kid thinking that that one gun, you know what I'm talking about, looked like a pencil. And so I get my pencil gun or I get my, my laser laser gun or my golden gun in the multiplayer and just tear it up. And it was really fun, really liked it. And it's a shame that it will never ever see the light of day again. We've obviously seen some people mod the, um, what is it, Gary's mod I wanna say? Using the source engine to create a GoldenEye game and but we're, we're not going to see that game again because there's so many different issues not only is the james bond license up in the air of being all over the place rare is actually owned by microsoft but it, this game was published by nintendo when nintendo was or rare was kind of a uh, development studio under nintendo so it's just like it's not going to happen if there was going to be a nintendo 64 mini or classic or whatever this is a game that would not be on it unfortunately but really fun game if you have never played goldeneye 007 i highly recommend finding somebody who has the game and experience it so you can kind of just get a taste of what that created back in the day moving on to number five i went, i didn't want to save this one for last because it is my favorite game and I have talked about it on the show before. So I'm not going to go over it too much because I hate, like I said, I have talked about it on the show multiple times on multiple occasions. And that is the legend of Zelda Ocarina of time. So for those of you who have not heard the show before, this is your first episode. Legend of Zelda Ocarina of time is my favorite video game of all time. Hands down. I have played lots of great games. Even the newest legend of Zelda breath of the wild is a fantastic game video game that's probably better to play and more fun but it is still not my favorite Zelda and it's still not my favorite video game of all time that is Ocarina of Time and that's just because of the the moments that I experienced as a kid playing this game and you know the memories that came along with it so Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time I believe was the fourth entry well Depends on if you're counting some of those uh, those Zelda games that we don't want to that nobody <laughs> wants to talk about. But it was the first Legend of Zelda game that was a 3D Zelda game. It had 3D graphics. It was developed by Nintendo EAD and published by Nintendo. It released in Japan on November 21st, 1998. North America, November 23rd, just a couple days later. And then December 11th in Europe and December 18th in Australia. So kind of spaced out uh, over the course of November and December. So obviously you play as Link in Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Where you start off as a young child. And you know you go off, get your spiritual stones, go to the Temple of Time, you become an adult. Ganondorf has you know taken over the world and Hyrule. And you need to go to the temples and talk to all the the sages or whatever and I, I i don't need to explain the story the story is one thing that was fantastic it was the world that really made a lasting impression on me it was the game that i think was the first game we owned when we bought 
our Nintendo 64, or actually when me and my sister were gifted our Nintendo 64. And I remember looking on the box of the back of the Nintendo 64 and there was like pictures of this game on the, the box. If I remember correctly, yeah, that is. And this was the game that you needed. This was the best game, I think, besides maybe Super Mario 64. These two were easily the best games on the console. So a lot of my friends growing up who had Nintendo 64s either had this game or they had Super Mario 64. I never had Super Mario 64. Great, fantastic game set the stage for future 3D Mario platformers, uh, even leading up to Super Mario Odyssey. Legend of Zelda was the game I owned. So I associate a lot of my, my memories to this game. And when I look at games today, I'll even often bring up Ocarina of Time and compare compare the games nowadays to, to that game back in the day, right? The game was great because it just was the first time that you could almost explore this, like I mentioned earlier, this big open world that just seemed to have no limit. There were so many different locations that had different environments and different characters in it that made it feel like the world was, was huge. And when you think about it, from a technical perspective, it was quite large compared to other games that were out there, right? It was the first kind of time that you could kind of go and explore an entire map. And it was kind of open world in the sense that, uh, you know, obviously there was loading screens when you would kind of go from one part of the map into, you know, a new section or something like that. But the game was essentially a spot where you could go from one side of the map to the other. And I know it's been said so many times before, but that first time you kind of go into Hyrule Field, it just, it really shows you the power because there's of, of that moment because there's so many people out there today that talk about that experience and those experiences that they experienced in the Zelda game and how it still has made an impression on them to this day. So... I'm not going to go too much into detail of Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time because like I said, it's a game that a lot of people know and it's a game I've talked about before. So I, I do want to get to some of these other games on my list. So moving on to the next game, Mario Kart 64. Now, I want to say that I think Mario Kart 64 is one of the best kart racers of all time. Obviously, we have better versions of that now with you know Mario Kart 8 Deluxe but there's that big debate especially going on right now was what's the best kart racer from back in the day I owned Crash Team Racing and I really enjoyed that game but Mario Kart 64 was a favorite of mine so Mario Kart 64 again developed by Nintendo EAD and published by Nintendo oh man I've I've let you guys down I just realized <laughs> Dang it, I started something and I didn't stick to it. I just realized I missed the Metacritic score in the last two games. So before I get into Mario Kart 64, let me give you the Metacritic for GoldenEye. So Metacritic got a 90, uh, 96 out of 100, which is incredible score. Um, moving on to Legend of Zelda, it's pretty easy to know what this is. The Metacritic is 99 out of 100. It's, uh, it's considered as one of the best games of all time. So no surprises there. Now let's move on to Mario Kart 64. Sorry about that. Mario Kart 64 
was released in Japan on December 14th, 1996, and in North America, February 10th, 1997. So actually just a couple, I guess 22 years ago. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, like a couple days ago, it was 20, on the date was 22 years ago. So Mario Kart 64 was, I believe, the second entry in the Mario Kart franchise we had that first one on SNES and then this was the first time that basically moved to the 3D graphics and track design and it also had four player co split screen right whereas the SNES version only had that split screen you could play with a second player but now the N64 with that power of being able to play four players you can now play four players so like I mentioned my aunt owned Mario Kart 64 I she she has since given me GoldenEye 007 as well as this game so I have them now but she owned it and she lent it to us all the time and me and my sister would play it again same same ordeal you'd have friends family over and this was the game that you just played I loved being able to enter the different cups and play the different tracks and stuff like that. I loved doing the time trials. And even as I got older and speed running became a thing, I remember looking up YouTube videos of how to speed run certain tracks and trying to practice at, you know, if this is going to be, if I want to get into speed running, this is a game that I could maybe, maybe check out. So Mario Kart 64 is a game that, you know, to this day is there's still entries going out into the franchise. It's one of the best kart racers of all time it it it's i'm kind of like a sounding like a broken record here with uh talking about goldeneye legend of zelda but these three games like the, these games set the stage for a lot of games in the that we are we're playing today right they're the foundation of the genre so mario kart 64 definitely a favorite of mine now going on to Metacritic to talk about what that game got. It got an 83, so really strong game. It's a great game, and yeah, that's why it's on my list. Moving on to the next game, another Pokemon title. Yes, you've guessed it. It's Pokemon Snap, developed by HAL Laboratory Pax Softnica and published by Nintendo. So Pokemon Snap was an interesting game because it basically was a rail shooter. You were on a rail and rather than shooting enemies like you did in you know, House of the Dead or whatever, you took pictures of Pokemon. And it was great because you could use different you know, things to wake up certain Pokemon or you use the Poke Flute to summon certain Pokemon or throw apples into the bushes to get Pokemon to come out. And obviously the better... The picture the higher your score obviously you wanted to get the pokemon's face in the shot that kind of stuff and the coolest part about this game is you would go and kind of go through different levels right and take pictures of different pokemon but what made this game fun is finding secret pokemon now they're not really secret but because eventually everyone kind of figures out where they are, but it was cool throwing different items to trigger different Pokemon to come out of different things, right? Like Gyarados coming out of the waterfall or getting Moltres to erupt out of the flames. Like those were the moments that made this game so exciting. I remember playing with my older sister and just trying to find different Pokemon in different parts of each map and stuff. I should really go back today and or even just watch a full playthrough of the game on YouTube to kind of find out if I 
I like to think that I, I've discovered and taken a picture of every Pokemon in Pokemon Snap, but it's very possible that I, I missed some back in the day. This is a game that I think should make a comeback. I think with the capability of the Switch, it's doable. You have your, your gyroscope, so if you're playing it, you know, portably or you have your your joy cons or your pro controller you could kind of use them the motion controls in that to kind of point your camera in certain spots to take the pictures this was also released at a time when let's see sorry it was released in march 21st 1999 and june 30th and i believe it only had the first yeah i only had the first generation of pokemon at that time right so you now would have, if it was released again, you would have all these generations of Pokemon to pull from. You could go into different regions that the Pokemon games have been in, right? Like you could obviously go into the um, Gen 7, Gen 6 locations, like the, the different regions. There's so many of them now that you can kind of make your levels based on certain you know, locations within those games and obviously pull the most popular Pokemon or the legendaries from there, right? It's more than just Mew and stuff. So this this is a game that I hope one day will make a comeback. It's, I, it's hard to say. I don't think it will. I know a lot of other fans and other people my age would really love a Pokemon Snap, uh, Pokemon Snap, remake or you know new release in in the 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 title pokemon snap but anyways it what did it get so we got a 77 on metacritic which again looking at the trend i think iggy poor iggy's wrecking balls has had the the worst score so far but another great game i remember going to uh retailers and they'd have the pokemon snap kiosk set up and you could go over there and you could print pictures of the Pokemon that you you took pictures of it it was really cool it was a big fad back in the day now the next game in on my list is what are we at here I guess it'd be number eight so number eight is another rental game and that is Yoshi's Story so Yoshi's Story is a game that uh, I believe is the second let me look it up real quick. I believe Yoshi's Story was the second. Oh, yeah. Obviously, it would be the second game. It's uh, the first one, Yoshi's World on the SNES. Or not Yoshi's World, sorry. Yoshi's Island on the Super NES. My apologies to all those Yoshi fans. Uh, Yoshi's Story was developed by Nintendo EAD and published by Nintendo, released on Nintendo 64 on December 21st, 1997 in Japan, and then later came to North America on March 10th, 1998. So you play as Yoshi. Um, it's kind of a side-scrolling platforming game where... Uh, basically everything's kind of like a pop-up book. That's my best way of explaining it. Um, it's kind of, I remember it being like kind of more 3d, like it's kind of hard to, I guess it, the best way to explain it is like it was pre-rendered 3d backgrounds and stuff, um, which created, you know, good textures on all the things and with it being a pop-up book and book that was the the coolest aspect now i don't have a lot of things to say about yoshi's story besides the fact that i remember you know it being kind of challenging on certain 
certain parts of the game. I remember playing it with my sister again. Um, a lot of these games I, I did play with my older sister. And I just remember when you died. I remember dying a lot in this game as a kid. I wasn't great at it. And I think that's why I liked it so much is I saw it as a challenge because it was that platforming game. And it was really cool because Yoshi's Story, I guess, kind of set the stage for some of the future Yoshi games. Like we still have 2D side-scrolling Yoshi games. We have, I, I mean, a new Yoshi's game, Yoshi game coming out next month. And it's still staying on trend of having some sort of unique art style to the games, right? So Yoshi's Story was a cool game. I really liked it. Um, I just wanted to mention it real quick. I don't have too much to say about this one, but it was a game I really enjoyed playing. Number nine on my list, which is the second last one, is Banjo-Kazooie. Oh, I almost forgot again. Yoshi's Story received a... 65% on Metacritic. So I think that we can't Iggy's Wrecking Ball got a 6.7, I think, on IGN. So we can't compare that score to this because Metacritic is like the compilation of all the different places that reviewed it. But I mean, Yoshi's Story looks like it's it's near the bottom as well. So interesting, very interesting. Now the last one, Banjo Kazooie course the 3d platform video game developed by rare and published by nintendo later published by microsoft game studios on the xbox 360 because as mentioned earlier rare was eventually bought by microsoft and so the banjo kazooie is now kind of part of xbox and microsoft which is very weird it was released in north america on june 29th 1998 so you obviously play as banjo and you have your your bird Kazooie and interesting fact I found out about this game. It was actually conceived on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, it was called Dream. I don't know if that was kind of just a placeholder or not, um, but it was actually supposed to be a game developed for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, but eventually got pushed to be released on the Nintendo 64. So in Banjo-Kazooie, you have a bunch of different levels, different sections where you go in, you'd catch, collect all the different feathers or were they feathers or they're musical, musical notes and jigsaw pieces. I'm thinking feathers because I've been, I played that spiritual successor ukulele. I think there's feathers in that one maybe. And uh, you can you, I remember you, collected these little I can't remember what they were called they were like these weird color colorful little elf looking things uh, but anyways you would kind of collect all these things and then uh the antagonist the witch Gruntilda I believe her name was uh you eventually worked up to to deal with her at the end um it was cool because you kind of had these platforming elements and it was kind of like a puzzle, right? You had to figure out how to get to certain parts of the game. Sometimes that required using Kazooie to kind of walk up steep inclines or to fly to certain sections that you couldn't just get to as Banjo, right? The game was probably, you know, next to Super Mario 64, the best 3D platformer with ma 3D mascot platformer out there. Even to this day, when people think of 3D mascot platformers, they think of Mario 
and Banjo-Kazooie is right up next to it, right? Maybe Crash Bandicoot or something like that. But Banjo-Kazooie, very, very popular game, very well received. Um, I, again, never owned this game, but I did eventually pick it up when it became available on the Xbox 360. And, you know, now I can even play it in Rare Replay where you got your 30... 30 games in there, you can play that as well as Banjo-Tooie, as well as the, you know, mixed reviewed Banjo-Kazooie mixed, or what is it called? Nuts and Bolts, that's what it is. I was going to call it Mixed Nuts. Um, and it has a 92 on Metacritic, so very highly received, well-received game as well. Now, the last game on my list, again, this isn't the best out of all of them. This just happened to be number 10, and that is Snowboard Kids. And... We'll say Snowboard Kids 2, I guess. So Snowboard Kids was developed by Ractium, and it was published by Atlas. It came out in December 12th in 1997 in Japan and March 15th, 1998 in North America. So Snowboard Kids is exactly what it sounds like. You were some kids and you snowboard. It was a snowboarding game for the Nintendo 64, and I remember renting it. It was another rental game, and it was another game that uh, I think... I liked a lot because it was another game that I played with my friends. It was a racing game. You could kind of have the challenge of challenging your friends. And I remember it being somewhat, I it just was unique, right? Like that's why I liked Iggy's Wrecking Ball. That's why I liked Snowboard Kids because they were kind of like racing games that were not the traditional kart or, or driving games, right? There was a way to kind of race your friends in a different way. And that was obviously new to me because I was experiencing all these memories for the first time. So when you went into a particular genre that I had experienced before, you know, it holds certain significance with me, right? Um, I pulled up some facts. Uh, there were some several game mechanics mechanics that were unique to snowboard kids from other snowboarding games and racing games at the time one was the addition of this second item slot allowing each player to carry a shooting item and support item um, because most kart racing games you could just be like mario kart you could get one item at a time so that was unique um Unlike many other kart racing games, players were required to pay 100 gold in order to collect an item during race. Gold could be obtained either through performing tricks or collecting coins scattered across the course. All courses also required players to race down the hill for multiple laps. Once a player had reached the bottom of the hill, he or she would need to pass through the lift gate to be transported back to the top of the hill. So very similar to Iggy's Wrecking Balls where you'd reach the top of the tower and it would take you all the way back down to the bottom just the opposite of this, you get to the bottom hill and they take you back up to the top and you basically do that. Um, so there was a sequel released in 1999, Snowboard Kids 2, which was very similar to the first one, just basically added on to it. And then there was some weird game called SBK Snowboard Kids, which is weird because that would just literally translate to Snowboard Kids, Snowboard Kids. And that came out on the DS. I've never played that game. No, I just remember seeing it at some point and looking at the art style and be like, this is not, no, this looks, this looks weird. Um, Snowboard Kids, I couldn't find a Metacritic, but I did find an IGN review. Uh, it got an 8 out of 10 um, on IGN.com. So again, looking at these games, after looking at the Metacritic scores, I looked up all these kind of 
Some I looked up as I was kind of doing the show notes for the show. Some of these I looked up kind of just now as I was as I was reading them off, and I'm surprised. I was expecting to have a couple of these games be really, really terrible, but they were some of them actually were higher than I expected them to be. Like this one, uh, Snowboard Kids. Little fun fact: if you have Snowboard Kids. Hang on to that Nintendo 64 cartridge. It's uh, a rare one for some reason, maybe just based on how many copies were sold. But I remember this game came back into recent memory by going to a used video game store and I remember seeing it. And it was like $100. And Snowboard Kids 2, I think, was even more money. So it's a very rare cartridge for whatever reason. It's expensive. You could probably get it for less than that on eBay. But it's a game I hope to one day bring back into my collection um yeah snowboard kids definitely definitely one of uh my favorite games on the console so that has been the list of my 10 i guess i i, I rounded it out i unknowingly it's 10 games that were my favorite nintendo 64 games there were obviously so many other games that i played and experienced as a kid but i just wanted to kind of briefly shorten it down to a list that were the ones that i still remember to this day and think about when i think about the nintendo 64 so hopefully you enjoy the hearing about these games i really recommend maybe just youtubing some of these old games to see what they're like kind of get an idea of the games i was playing as a kid i know i'm young i'm only 24 but these games you know, like I said, did set the foundation for a lot of the games that we're playing today, uh, especially those three, GoldenEye 007, Ocarina of Time, and Mario Kart 64. They were games that, all these games were games that I really enjoyed, and like I said, majority of them were games I rented, and I didn't just rent them once, I rented them, you know, back to back as many times as I could, and now that I'm older, I'm trying to bring back these games. I would say out of all of them, I don't own a cartridge for Banjo-Kazooie. I don't own a cartridge for Snowboard Kids. And I don't own a cartridge for Iggy's Wrecking Balls. Other than that, I own all these now. So I can kind of play these at any time. And with this episode, I hope that in the coming weeks, I can kind of make some time to stream some of them over on my Twitch channel. So go over to twitch.tv slash gamesarefunpodcast and hopefully in the coming weeks, I, I will try my best to stream some of these. I hope to stream Mystical Ninja because that's a really weird game and maybe you guys can find some entertainment in watching me play this really Japanese game. I think that would be, be really fun. But anyways, I'm going to wrap up the show. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Games Are Fun, number 37. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, make sure you check out that new Apex Legends podcast, Apex Champions. Just a reminder that you can go over to the Twitter at Apex underscore Champions. Give it a follow. Uh, set the notifications on so you don't miss a tweet from there. Get any of the, the updates on that show. And we will talk to you guys next Tuesday on another episode. Stay tuned for the podcast to reach Spotify and some of those other platforms. Anyways, we will talk to you guys later.